I was just curious about everything. Everything was interesting. I always felt like I didn't have enough time to learn all the interesting things. That was a big uh, strength that I had. Being curious about everything is truly a great gift. And one of the things I liked about this conversation with Phil Dibvig is listening to how he embraces the many opportunities out there for research. He talks about his ideas pretty freely and sometimes people steal ideas. But that doesn't worry him overly because there are so many ideas to have. It doesn't matter if something gets stolen, he can just work on the next idea. And that's nice because it shows you that there aren't really so much missed opportunities as just lots of opportunities that one can pursue. And that's a very encouraging thought, I think, that the world is more full of possibilities than perhaps one imagines. This is Nobel Prize Conversations. Our guest this time is Philip Dibvig, 2022 Laureate in Economic Sciences. He was awarded the prize for developing theoretical models about the role of banks in financial crises, forming the foundation of modern bank regulation. He shared the prize with Douglas Diamond and Ben Bernanke. Your host is Adam Smith, Chief Scientific Officer at Nobel Prize Outreach. This podcast was produced in cooperation with Fundación Ramón Areces. Philip Dibvig is the Boatman's Bank Shares Professor of Banking and Finance, the Olin Business School of Washington University in St. Louis. He's also a musician and very nearly chose that professional path instead of going into economic research. We'll hear him talk about this fork in the road, as well as his boundless curiosity and his love of weightlifting. But we start with music. So this, of course, is Mozart's march in D major, K249, which is the music that always plays to accompany the new laureates as they walk on stage at the award ceremony in the concert hall in Stockholm. Do you remember that moment with special pleasure? And can you recollect what you were thinking as you walked on stage? Actually, as I walked on stage... I was uh, happy to see Ingrid Werner, who's an old friend who walked up alongside me for eight meters or whatever. <laughs> and she had been a little under the weather the previous day, and uh, I hadn't been able to see her. So it was nice to give her a nod. That was what I was thinking. <laughs> and once you took your chair and you were seated there with everyone around you, did anything in particular occur to you as you were on stage? Mostly, I just want to make sure I didn't screw up, that I didn't make any big mistakes. No, it was a nice moment. I mean, everything during Nobel Week was so well orchestrated. It was exhausting. And uh, I think if I had gotten the uh, prize 20 years ago, I would have signed up for all the optional events and I would have uh, had the energy to do them all. But I think that, uh, I don't know, it's just very overwhelming the, the whole week and a big schedule and you start out jet lagged and I had more and better champagne than I've ever had before in my life. It was a spectacle the whole week. <laughs> yes, a champagne haze. Was there one favorite moment? For all the wonderful things in the week, I think it was really nice. We booked a room for a private dinner with our official guests and a few other people. Hmm. That was, of course, nice. We don't get to see our guests all that much during the week because we're booked up so much. And so that was something was special. I have a picture of my 
I arranged for a piano to be there, and I have a picture of me playing the piano and my daughter singing and a good friend of mine. Uh, you can actually see in the mirror in the room playing the flute. So <laughs> that was a nice moment. Music's always been important for me, so that's something that actually came up several times. That is indeed why I thought it would be nice to start this conversation with music. What were you and your daughter playing and singing at that occasion? I don't remember. It was whatever she requested. That's clever that you can just provide whatever she wants. Uh, not always, but I'm pretty good at requests. So you play the piano. Uh, what else do you play? Well, that's my main instrument. The interesting thing is that in several of the productions, I'm playing a baritone ukulele, which is an instrument that I only started, I don't know, in September. I've worked professionally playing the piano, but never the baritone uke. But somehow that seems to work its way into everything. <laughs> I have a friend who's 70 years ago at the age of 12 was a radio and television personality in St. Louis. And he has trouble playing now because of some you know, physical problems with his fingers. And so he's been giving away some of his instruments. He gave me this very lovely uh, baritone uke. I guess it's more portable than a piano, but then you yes, tend to find Yes, and uh, when the Associated Press interviewed me in Boston, I didn't have a piano with me because I was on the road, but I had brought the baritone uke. <laughs> and they, they used that in their initial news announcement. Did you ever think of becoming a musician professionally? Oh, yeah, that was something I thought about. One of the reasons I decided not to was actually because, well, there, I think there are two things. One is that I knew that that would have to be 100% of my life, and I wasn't quite ready for that. But also, I, at the age when I was deciding, I had stage fright, which was quite bad. You know, I realize now that that would have and has gone away over time. When you've had experience talking in front of audiences, for me in classes and in conferences, and uh, also playing music in front of people after a while, it becomes normal. And for me, at least, the stage fright went, went away. They're famous musicians. I think Vladimir Horowitz was one who supposedly had uh, terrible stage fright their whole life. Yes, it's, it's common. I'm told the actor David Niven, who seems the epitome of confidence on screen, also suffered incredible stage fright before going on screen. So, Oh, that's interesting. Yeah, I find it helps to pretend that I'm confident. <laughs> and then there's actually psychological research that says if you pretend that you're happy, then you actually get happier. If you pretend that you're confident, you actually get more confident. So it's curious. And it's nice that confidence in music and confidence in, as you say, teaching economics and finance reinforce each other and, and build. Yep. <laughs> Do you play a full classical repertoire? Are you Maybe past tense. I am classically trained, and by the end of high school, I was playing five or six hours a day. Various things in school, like playing with the orchestra and the chorus, and playing during study hall, and also playing after school. So, My sister's a concert pianist. She claims that I could have been, I'm not sure, because I'm not sure I really had the single-minded devotion that's really required. What was it about your home environment that produced two potential concert pianist, one actual concert pianist, but two such talented musicians? Well, I think that uh, we had a culture of music. My mother was a music education major in college, and my father is also a drummer, and he had made uh, spending money in college playing in a band. So there was that culture, and they, they were into music, and the, we had 
music playing a fair amount in the house. We had a lot of musical instruments sort of sitting around that you could pick up and play if you wanted to. It must be a very valuable lesson going through life to know that you can dedicate five or six hours a day to doing something because it's not so usual that young people do that. Well, I think there are a couple of things. One is that I'm sure that the music helped a lot with my self-discipline, but it's also a question of finding the things that you like. (laughs) When I talk to my students about research and picking a research topic, I tell them that they need to work on something that they care about. There could be a lot of different reasons why they care about. But if it's something that where you're really curious, you got to know, or you're really angry because you think that people are saying the wrong thing and they got it backwards, or you just think it's so important for humanity to get this right and you've got a passion that you need to do it, then you can work on it for 20 hours a week or 80 hours a week. And it's something you want to do. If it's something that you're doing because you think this is something that you can get published and it'll help your career, but you don't really like the project, you don't care about it, then it's a big chore to work on it for three hours a week. And I think that uh, if somebody would look at me and say, oh, that means that my kids have to play music, I would say no. means that you have to find something for your kids, which is a hook for them. And for different people, it'll be different thing. Maybe art is what they want to spend five hours a day on, or dance, or some sports, whatever it is. I think it's good to have something that you care about and that you're focused on. And for what I do, something that uses your brain too and gets you thinking. It's very good advice. Do you think it matters if young people spend their time doing something that seemingly doesn't seem to be terribly productive, like six hours playing computer games a day? Um, at least with computer games, it's not passive. Hmm. I think I would be happier to see my kid playing computer games than just watching television. Sure. And I've watched plenty of television. I, I think you need time, too, to just play and to let your mind be free and be creative. Because otherwise, you know, I, what I really worry about is all these things that are good uses of time, but the kids are just completely booked up. You know, with the amount of homework they have, plus the dancing lessons, plus the fencing lessons, plus the soccer game, and all of these structured activities, they don't have time for kind of unstructured play that was, I think, good for creativity. Hmm. Your childhood was different. You had time to be yourself. Yeah, I had time to be myself. Before my mom passed, actually, she taught me something about myself. She said, Phil, you never once when you were a kid said, Mom, I'm bored. I don't know what to do. Because, I don't know, I was just curious about everything. Everything was interesting. And I always felt like I didn't have enough time to do all the interesting things and to learn all the interesting things. That was a big uh, strength that I had. That's fabulous. And very lucky to have a mind that is so hungry, I guess. I'm not sure how much of that is heredity or how much of that is environment. But I think it's very easy to kill that off in kids. My gut tells me, but I have no evidence of this, that uh, little kids are just naturally curious, naturally creative. And if you can keep that alive, I think that serves people really well. In your own case, you went on to study maths and physics as your major at university. And you obviously were very good with numbers. Were numbers something that always came easily to you? I think so. I think it was an advantage being in a family where my parents told me math was easy. (laughs) 
I mean, I can imagine being in a family where your dad says, you know, math was so hard for me. If you can get a C, that's really great. I think that would really make you not so good at math. But if your parents are saying, or other people in your family are saying math is easy, then of course you don't want to be bad at what's something that's easy. (laughs) You know, (laughs) you look really bad. But I think it helped in terms of the math. I think music, both the discipline part and also the mathematical side of the music helped. Playing games was so important. We joke about how I knew how to play bridge before I knew how to talk. That's not literally true, but it's the right idea. And I think that you get into the bridge game, you want to try to remember the cards play, you want to count the cards, you want to try to infer what suits uh, your opponents have left when you're playing a hand. There's all sorts of things which are sort of mathematical exercises, even if they're not posed that way. Yes, I think that an interest in in bridge at a very early age is pretty unusual. It was just normal in my family. At family gatherings, first thing is to get out the bridge tables. Philip Dibvig grew up in Dayton, Ohio, before he left to study mathematics and physics at Indiana University, eventually switching to economics. He received his doctorate at Yale, where he met his co-laureate Douglas Diamond. For 12 years, until 2021, Professor Dibvig led a summer research program at Chengdu's Southwest University of Finance and Economics in the Chinese province of Sichuan. I like saying I was a dean because dean and director are the same word in Chinese, and I think it's funnier to think of myself as a dean. Why is it funny to think of yourself as a dean? Oh, I just don't think... I When I think of a dean, I think of some kind of... a authority figure that I don't feel like I am. And my main role there was to help the local people, especially the local faculty in their research. And I would bring in speakers and set up lecture series and advise them on the research and do joint work with them. And is there something in particular about the Chinese environment that makes it a pleasure to work there and to nurture an institute in that place? I think I started going at a time in my life when I needed a change. It was really fun the first time I went to China and I didn't speak any Chinese. I just know how to say hello and no problem. <laughs> and, you know, that would get me by. I'd go into a restaurant and I, I'd look at the menu. And in Beijing, most of the uh, menus have pictures on them. So I point to the pictures. Then they had asked me something and I didn't know what they said. You know, do you want pepper sauce or garlic sauce? And I'd just say no problem. <laughs> and then... <laughs> It's like, you're the pro, bring me something good. And that was fun. It was a little bit, I imagine, like a vow of silence in some religious orders because it was impossible for me to have a conversation. It was very peaceful, but it was also a little exciting and not too dangerous because I had a cell phone and friends who could help me out if I needed it. That was interesting. And in Sichuan, especially Chengdu, where I was working, they have the spicy food, which is really great. It's called ma la tsai. Ma means uh, numbing. And uh, la is hot and spicy. And the food there has both Sichuan peppercorns, which have this numbing effect, and the hot peppers. And over the years, you've learned Chinese, I gather. Just a little. I learn enough to, uh, you know, I, I, I know some food names and I know a few funny things. I know how to say I can speak absolutely no Chinese in Chinese. Do you want to say that for me? That has a little bit of a Sichuan accent flavor. Uh, you know, there's some countries 
uh, you can be very proficient in their language and speak with them for 10 minutes. And they'll say at the end, you know, you can't speak French, can you? <laughs> but they're actually very grateful for your knowing a little bit and for making the effort. And it's a way of singling that you respect their culture and you're interested in it. It's really rewarding. You just know a little bit. And so it's nice if I'm going to go to some kind of a dinner with officials like they have. If, you know, 12 people sitting around a round table with a lazy Susan in the middle with the food on it to be able to name some of the foods and just give pleasantries. Hello, how are you, etc. In Chinese, and maybe I don't understand much what they're saying the rest of the dinner, but at least it's established that I respect them and I'm part of it. I'm not just hmm. an outsider, 100%. Let's go back to you as a maths and physics major. What turned you to economics and finance? What switched you? I mean, I've always had a lot of interests. So that means that you don't quite know what which direction you really want to go in. I went to Indiana because it was at that time the top music school and also it was kind of the right distance away from home. It was close enough so that I could come home for holidays conveniently and far enough that my parents were unlikely to visit me without calling first. <laughs> I was planning to be a double major in math and music, but I found out the music school was too good. They say, uh, we don't do double majors. If you have any interest in anything else, just do it. Music is too hard. And so I said, okay, well, I guess I'm a math major. I mean, I took some courses in the music school. Actually accompanied opera singers to make pocket money, play for their lessons and their practice. And I was in a number of student music things and went to of course, lots of performances. I benefited a lot from the good music school there, even though I wasn't a music major. Now, after I'd been there for like a year or so, I realized I really wanted to do something that applied math, not pure mathematics. At that point, physics and economics were the main candidates. And when I went to the physics department, I say, what's my chance of getting into a top PhD program in physics if I'm major in math and economics as an undergraduate? And the advisor laughed and said, well, seriously, there's a whole body of knowledge that you need to know that you wouldn't have, and that's a problem. And I went to the economics department, and I asked the parallel question. I said, What's, what are my chances of getting into a top graduate school in economics if I may have an undergraduate major in math and physics? And the advisor said, oh, that'd be so great, because you learn the skills you need. You get the problem-solving approach from the physics and the math background from the math. And uh, undergraduate economics, at least at that time, he said, was not very close to graduate economics. Yeah, that's such an insightful question on your part. And what a nice answer on his part. Yeah, that they're open to outside influence. That's fantastic. So anyway, I didn't know the notion of dominant strategy, which I would call it now to major in math and physics, but I I knew putting off a decision. <laughs> so I could put off a decision on what I wanted to do by majoring in math and physics. When it was time to graduate, I had to make a decision. That's when I, I went to economics. And actually, I made another transition, which is within economics, I ended up focusing mostly on finance. So Adam, what was the work that led to Philip Dibvig being awarded the Economic Sciences Prize? Well, together with his co-laureate, Douglas Diamond, he produced the Diamond-Dibvig model, which describes how liquidity works in financial systems in banks. Basically, banks receive deposits from investors. 
and then they give money out as loans to people who want to build things like buy houses or develop businesses, etc. And the model describes the interplay between those two things. One rather short-term, deposits, they come in and people might want their money back very quickly, and one very long-term, loans, where you might not get paid back for many years. And that interplay turns out to be very key in understanding how liquidity is created in financial systems, how people get credit. And so why is the Diamond Digbid model so important? Well, taken together with the work of the other laureate in this Economic Sciences Prize, Ben Bernanke, former chairman of the Federal Reserve Bank, who had shown how important banks are in preserving the financial system and in the provision of credit, the work helps people understand just how important it is to make sure that banks are there and functioning and aren't foreclosing. Therefore, that has influenced the way that central bankers around the world think about banks when times are hard. During, for instance, the financial crisis of 2008, people realised in a way that they hadn't during the Great Depression of the 1930s, that it was really important that the banks didn't all close or that lots of banks didn't close, because then that would have deprived the financial system of credit. And without credit, nobody can build up again. It has actually had quite a profound influence on the way that policymakers view the role of banks. This is quite a change in perspective. And it's interesting to listen to Phil Dibvig talk about what the situation was like back in the 1970s when he started to work on financial systems. It's strange that at that time, people did not think of banking as being in finance, but I think people in finance departments now would say that banking is in finance. Curiously, they still don't think insurance is in finance. I don't understand that. (laughs) Actually, I find it a little annoying when people need to put me or put different parts of disciplines in boxes. I think that creates artificial uh, restrictions on the way people think. In my experience, things work out better if they happen organically. For example, a few times I set about saying, I want to do something that's important for policy. And it was never anywhere near the magnitude of importance of the things like what Doug and I did in the prize paper that I did because of curiosity. Yeah, so sticking to your own rule of doing what you truly care about, yes. Well, I cared about the policy things too because I thought they were important, but somehow it didn't seem to be as important as what I did when I was really curious. I just wanted to figure out what's going on. So that leads me to ask how you pick problems. Basically, your work always involves applying a theoretical analysis to some kind of practical problem. There are so many problems. How do you pick where to go? I don't have any any formula. It's what I'm interested in what I'm curious about. Is there any problem that you can't apply a theoretical analysis to? Of course. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I mean, you may be able to apply to some aspects. A lot of things in life I do think about, you know, using these things. And that started when I was a kid, I think. It probably grew out of doing games and puzzles. When I was walking to and from school, I noticed that when I walked to school, I took a little different route than I did coming home. Our neighborhood was not arranged in squares, you know, has curved streets. And so it wasn't obvious, like, what's the shortest way or what's the fastest way, whatever. So I asked myself, you know, is that because, is there a good reason for that? Or is it just that if I'm just looking at what's in front of me and not paying attention to the fact that there's something up 
further, which is going to be worse if I go that way. And when I thought about it, actually, there was some of both. So if I'm walking along and I'm going to walk along a busy street for a while, when I get to the street, it's coming from one side and I leave the street, it's going to be from the other side. Then um, what I want to do is each time I come to an intersection, I see how busy the traffic is. There are no cars and I cross. So that way I can minimize the time that I wait for the cars. I mean, I could just cross at the first intersection I get to, but if there are a lot of cars coming, I'm going to waste time with that. And so if I get to the intersection and don't cross, so I go to the next one. And it turns out that's a reason for it to be asymmetric because I'm going to tend to cross earlier, say farther north in one direction and earlier in the other direction as well, which would be farther south. And so there's an asymmetry in the path that I take, which comes from actually doing the right thing. I also figured out there's some things I was doing which were just not optimal. When I'm coming from this direction, then this one thing seems more important. When I'm coming from the other direction, another thing comes more important. And did you change your route to optimize it after that? Yeah, yes. of course. <laughs> I also randomized some just for interest. I think partly that was just curiosity and also a way of relieving the boredom of walking through the same route every day. It is indeed revealing about how your mind works. It shows you grew up perhaps in a gentler place than I did. I grew up in London, and I think my route to school was mainly dictated by which way was less likely to encounter bullies. So, yeah, and I think both being directions. in this uh, kind of upper middle class, uh, very peaceful suburb of Dayton with very good public schools gave me kind of the breathing room to develop. And as you say, I didn't have to deal with gangs or bullies or... I mean, I did encounter, like everybody does, a few bullies, but they were kind of low-level bullies. They're kind of easy, easy to deal with. I think <laughs> ours were low-level too. But yes, the breathing space again, so important. I wanted to just talk about the Diamond Dibfig paper. The thing about that paper is that as... So often, when two bright people get together and do something special, the whole is more than the sum of the parts, if you like, that somehow by working together, you create something truly special. And it's interesting because you have to, I suppose, to to a certain extent, kind of put your own ego aside to share knowledge with somebody else. And especially in academia, that's not perhaps so normal. People are, you know, you're trying to plow your own furrow, make your own career. But obviously, it was a very successful relationship. And I just wondered what you thought about that. Well, I'll mention a couple things. Once we got into the paper, we were just full equal partners, and we did everything. We came in more different than we exited, I think. Doug knew a lot about banking institutions. He has talked about a professor he had at Brown as an undergraduate that had a fabulous course, and that was a piece of background he had. I had a stronger background in theory, and I'd done papers with multiple equilibrium, which I talked about in my Nobel lecture, that primed me to be thinking about at least part of this in a way that, that worked for us. I think that one thing that helped me a lot in my early career is that I was a young kid. I got my PhD at the age of around my 24th birthday, I guess. And when I got the job at Princeton, it's like, wow, people are just going to pay me for a few years to do something fun. And I had no career concern. I knew I was smart and I 
I was proud I was smart, probably, but I didn't have you know a huge ego, and I didn't feel like I had anything to prove. I was just having fun, and that meant if I had a project that I'd been working on for quite a while, and it wasn't working, I wouldn't say, "Oh, I'm not going to throw away those eight months." Instead, I was thinking, "This isn't fun," and I'd put it aside, work on something else. I think that helped a lot, and I don't know, Doug and I never. I don't think we ever had a moment of anger between us. It's nice to hear, but perhaps also surprising to hear that when your young mind so full of ideas, you don't have any worries about sharing those ideas. You don't think if I share this with somebody else, they might run away with it and publish it themselves. I mean, you obviously didn't suffer from that. I think a lot of young people going into academia do worry about what they should share and what they can't share. And things do get stolen. I'm not going to go into any stories about that, but uh, I mean, to the extent I worried about it, maybe it influenced me a little bit when I moved, that, that I would be away from a colleague that I felt I couldn't talk to. But mostly I just talk too much, and I, I, I'm, I have sort of academic tendency to, to share everything. Some people seem to have trouble coming up with ideas and projects to work on. I've never had this problem. It's kind of like when I was a kid, there are too many things that are interesting out there. And I look around and there are just so many interesting problems to work on. And if somebody hears my idea that I haven't started working on yet and wants to work on it, I say, yeah, go ahead, because I'll have another idea. <laughs> and I don't know why that's easier for me than for some people. It's a little bit like, uh, you know, if you're good at algebra, you know, it's hard to conceive of what it feels like to be weak at algebra. Because, you know, you learn this when you're so young, you don't remember the time that you didn't know it. Having an abundance of ideas, how lovely. Do they just pop into your head? Do you work at it? Yeah, I mean, there can be different things. For creative work, it's good to have kind of a playtime when you're relaxed and when you're not working too hard. I think if you try to force it, it's harder, but it can be possible. For me, I, I really hate the idea of working under deadline. I work very hard not to commit say, to present a paper that it's not ready yet now so that I have to push it through and come up with it. Sometimes the trigger is something, you'll see something in the news and you look at it and you say, that's really an interesting setting and I, I wonder how that works. And you start writing down a little model and you say, no, no, that's not what's going on. You, you try another one and, and after a while you have something that kind of fits that setting. And, and at the end you may say, yeah, that was kind of curious and go on to something else. Or you may say, you know, I think that other people would be interested in seeing this and there's more development to do there and you can write a paper. Uh, sometimes it's, you see something in the literature, uh, you see a paper presented at a meeting or something in a journal, and you think the problem is interesting, but you think they have completely the wrong answer. And you say, why don't I believe this answer? And you say, well, there's a strange assumption here. Well, what happens if you switch the assumption? Hmm. So that's something, there's a more explicit trigger there. I don't know. A lot of them just come from the ether. It comes from your subconscious somewhere. It's been thinking about things and mulling over some stuff, and then it sends you this idea. And it's like it came from outer space. Or maybe there is somebody in outer space beamed it in. Who knows? <laughs> that's possible. <laughs> yeah, Phil Dibvig's programmer keeps sending these ideas down. It's very interesting to hear that account of an inquisitive mind at work. Very nice.
So when I was about 45, I weighed about 100 pounds more than I do now, about 45 kilos more. I'm sure I had high blood pressure for a long time, but that's when I learned about it. And uh, my ankles were swollen. I felt bad. And I just had the definite impression that unless I changed something, I was going to die soon. I went out and tried all sorts of different types of exercise. I said, I'm going to have to have some kind of exercise that I'm going to be happy doing all the time. It's really the same thing as do research on a problem that you care about, because otherwise you won't keep doing it. Before that, I would have thought that weightlifting was boring and stupid. But when I tried it, I really liked it. And I think they're combinations of things. It's very visceral. There are good uh, chemicals in the brain that come. And uh, you can measure your progress. When you start out, your progress is good because a lot of that is coordinating your nerves and your muscles and not just building strength. You can see that you were able to do three more lifts than last time or five more pounds, whatever, of weight. And that's really good for keeping motivated. And it doesn't take so long. I mean, if you're going to walk 10 miles, that takes a long time. Weightlifting doesn't take that long. I end up with weightlifting and Tai Chi. And they're good compliments because it's possible to do the weightlifting and you end up like these uh, Saturday Night Live parodies of Arnold Schwarzenegger. Hello, let us begin by introducing ourselves. I am Hans. I'm Dan Franz. And we want to pump you up. <laughs> you know, you're just muscle bound. You can hardly move. And then the Tai Chi, uh, you can still relax. It, it's interesting to see that the same method is applied, whether it's finding a problem or finding an exercise routine. It's obviously a very disciplined approach. Oh, I don't feel disciplined at all. And one thing that's interesting is that after I had like five or 10 papers, I went back and looked at my papers. I don't know if I had to, to write up a report on my research. And there were on a lot of different topics. And it struck me how similar they are. I thought that they were completely different. And they were if you just look at the topic or the title. But the methodology and the, the way I thought about things had a lot of patterns in it that I didn't even realize it at the time. Interesting to analyze yourself in that way. Fascinating. It's been a huge pleasure speaking to you. Thank you very much indeed. I hope you've enjoyed the conversation because I very much have. Yeah, it's very nice. Thank you so much. You just heard Nobel Prize Conversations. If you'd like to learn more about Philip Dibvig, you can go to nobelprize.org where you'll find a wealth of information about the prizes and the people behind the discoveries. Nobel Prize Conversations is a podcast series with Adam Smith, a co-production of FILT and Nobel Prize Outreach. The producer for this episode was Karin Svensson. The editorial team also includes Andrew Hart, Olivia Lundquist and me, Claire Brilliant. Music by Epidemic Sound. Philip Dibvig isn't the only economic sciences laureate who had dreams of becoming a professional pianist. Check out our earlier conversation with 2015 laureate Angus Deaton. You can find previous seasons and conversations on Acast or wherever you listen to podcasts. Thanks for listening. If you're passionate about the Nobel Prize, you won't want to miss a single episode of our podcast. 
be sure to subscribe. We're available on Acast, Amazon Music, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, GeoSarvan, Spotify, and many, many more popular platforms. 